If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What's the secret to truly gripping historical fiction? Well, for today's podcast, I spoke to the best-selling historical novelist Robert Harris to try and find out. You've probably come across some of Robert's books, such as Munich, Enigma, Pompeii, Fatherland or The Second Sleep, many of which have been adapted for film. For his latest book, V2, Robert returns to the Second World War and the launching of one of the conflict's deadliest weapons. I spoke to him to find out more. So thanks very much for joining me to discuss your new World War II thriller, V2. To begin with, I think you can do this better than me, so I wonder if you could just give listeners an idea of what it's all about, the opening gambit, as it were. Well, the novel um, takes place over uh, four or five days at the end of November 1944, um, and uh, it's about the launching of V-2 ballistic missiles from occupied Holland by the Germans against London, And I tell the story through two main characters. One is a German rocket engineer, scientist, who's been attached to the military who are firing uh, the rockets from the woods around The Hague. Uh, And my other character is an English woman, a member of the Women's Royal Air Force, who uh, works at RF Medmenham. Uh, where they dealt with photo reconnaissance. And she uh, is a, a victim of a, of a V2 rocket strike in the early pages of the book. And the, the, the novel cuts back and forth between the two of them. The fact that it cuts back and forth between these two sides is one of the most um, exciting elements of the book. Why did you want to show it from those two different perspectives? Well, I thought one couldn't really tell the story of the V2 and bring home the drama of it without seeing it from both sides, to just be with the rocket engineer launching the missiles without seeing the effect would only tell half the story. Uh, Similarly, um, I wanted to describe um, 
how the British set about trying to fight back against the, these rocket attacks, which were essentially unstoppable. Once the thing was in flight, there was no means of shooting it down. It travelled at 3,500 miles an hour. But they did uh, come up with uh, one way of trying to fight back against it, and that's a true story. A, a, a group of uh, women from the RAF were sent to occupied Belgium, um, and their job was to calculate the curve of the rocket. Uh, and uh, they lived in a small Belgian town called Mechelen. I'll dig into some of those true parts of the story in a minute, but I wonder what it was about the V2 in particular that really captured your imagination. Why did you think that this particular development of th this weapon was a really exciting story to tell about the Second World War? I've always been very... Uh, haunted by the this V2 missile, the, the images one sees of it, um, the film that was taken of it in flight, its extraordinary uh, modernity. It was the beginning of the new era um, of space travel, uh, and I felt that it was a sort of hinge in history between conventional warfare and the kind of missile-based warfare we have today. So there was something about the rocket itself which I found very haunting. And uh, there was a kind of um, Faustian pact in the development of it. It really did begin with just a group of idealistic teenagers, essentially, uh, in Berlin in the 1920s, who played around with rockets on waste ground. Uh, and this happened to collide with the advent of the Nazi regime when they poured money into rearmament. And suddenly, uh, these rocket kids had the possibility of getting hold of huge funds, if they agreed, um, to be funded by the ar army and to develop their rocket technology uh, as a weapon. And that's what they did. And it grew huger and huger and huger with endless moral compromises being made by this group of really um, space pioneers. Uh, and it turned into this uh, fearsome weapon. So that haunted me as well. I thought that that was a very interesting story. And when on top of that, about four years ago, I came across the story of this group of women sent out to newly liberated Belgium to try and fight against it, um, I just felt that this was a natural story for the kind of book that I like to write. Yeah, in the in the acknowledgements at the end of the book, you say that the genesis of this book partly was an obituary of uh, a woman from the Women's Auxiliary Air Force called Eileen Younghusband. What can you tell us about that and why her story particularly resonated with you? Well, the obituary in the Times um, had this wonderful description of how Eileen, if I can call her that, who died at the age of 95 four years ago, um, she used to work in the filter room where we've, we've all seen them. They look like croupiers in a casino moving uh, images of the tokens showing incoming German bombers. So that was what she started off doing. And then in uh, 1944, she was a group, one of uh, eight WAF officers who were considered good at mathematics, who were given a crash course in, in trigonometry, essentially, uh, and algebra, um, to calculate the parabolic curve of the rocket. And in the bank vault in Mechelen, where they worked, um, 70 miles south of where the Germans were firing the rockets, um, they were told that if they could complete the calculation of the parabolic curve, giving the launch site, within six minutes, it would be possible for the RAF to get a Spitfire equipped with bombs 
over the woods where the Germans were firing from before the Germans had time to disassemble the launch site and get all the vehicles away. So it was a, it was a race against time. And as I say in the novel, it took five minutes for a missile to hit London, and these women had six minutes to stop the next. And that, uh, for uh, any storyteller, is just a gift. And that was in this uh, obituary. And so I got hold of Eileen's book. She wrote two books, one in particular uh, called One Woman's War, which described in more detail uh, this group and uh, how they um, fared, really, in this newly liberated town, where there was still lots of evidence of the Germans all around, and the population were very short of food. It was bleak. Uh, it was a haunting atmosphere to write about. Yeah, you paint that picture very well, I think, of the newly liberated Belgium. I wonder if you could just talk in a bit more detail about what the atmosphere there was like when these women arrived. Mechelen had been occupied, obviously, for more than four years. Um, uh, it had been bombed. Um, it was The war had passed through it, but it had left scars. Um, there was a curfew. The women, these eight women, were all billeted on local families, um, which again gave me an interesting um, angle of attack in a story. Imagine yourself. You're a woman. You've hardly ever been out of um, Britain before. Women weren't sent overseas to fight in the Second World War. You're suddenly dropped in this town, billeted on a family, and then you have all the pressure of making these calculations and walking through those dark streets and fearing uh, that there might still be Germans around. Uh, I've I've always wanted to write a novel with a, a strong part, naturally, for a woman in it. And this seemed to me to, to give me the perfect opportunity. As you say, it's kind of an, ama an amazing vehicle for exploring some of the work that women did in the Second World War, which was really remarkable. The maths that they were undertaking was pretty mind-boggling. How did you um, kind of get to grips as a writer rather than a mathematician with the work that they were undertaking on both sides of, of the story here? Well, that was very hard. One thing I did change, and, and I should say that my character, Kay, uh, has no virtually no similarities with the real-life Eileen whatsoever, not least because I wanted to uh, give her a job which was also performed by women and which was also vital. That was photo interpretation, uh, interpreting the reconnaissance pictures that the RAF brought back of, of German towns and troop movements and so on, which was all done at RAF Medmenham near Marlow in Buckinghamshire. And uh, so there was quite a lot of background to research about that. Um, the actual calculations themselves are almost, um, it's impossible to find the actual procedure that they followed, or at least I found it impossible to, to discover. So I simply had to use general mathematics uh, on, on the vague principle of what they would do. I'd been down this road before. I wrote a novel called Enigma, all about Bletchley Park, many years ago, at a time when there wasn't much available about how Enigma was broken. And the mathematics of that were pretty challenging. Uh, and, so, and these were too. And of course, I had to learn the technical details of the V2 uh, because my main uh, male character, uh, Dr. Graf is a uh, engineer who works at Pinamunda at the Rocket Center developing these rockets. So I had to have quite a lot of technical detail there. But I like doing that. I like taking things that are abstruse, um, 
Enigma or or the workings of an aqueduct of Pompeii and 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 building a procedural novel around people doing these sorts of technical things. Uh, it gives you a sense of reality and also I think I hope takes the reader inside a world more vividly than a non-fiction book can do. I can describe how the people feel as they're doing this and the smell and the touch and the taste of it all. Uh, and that, I think, is the argument for historical fiction. That's obviously one aspect of the vast amount of research into this book. And the other is the the historical context. How do you, because obviously you've done this many times over over the years, writing historical fiction. How do you kind of filter through historical material to get to stuff that's really going to give you an evocative setting? It, it involves a lot of research. Um, I mean, generally, the notes that I take for a novel are far longer and more extensive than the novel itself turns out to be. Uh, so, you know, I read everything that I can get hold of, books to begin with, documents where I can get hold of them. Um, there's a lot these days on the internet uh, that's available, amateur enthusiasts. Um, we'd have the detail of pretty well every V2 that was ever fired and what effect it had. And so I was able, once I hit on the period uh, that I would set the book over, and I, I quite like setting a novel over a concentrated period, um, then I was able to take the actual rockets that struck London and with the casualties and put them into the book. Uh, and so, you know, one builds builds out from that. Yeah, I think that's something that um, really drives it home more. When you read in, in your foreword, you say, you know, all the V2 attacks that we detail here on London happened as, as occurred. So then when you hear those descriptions, they're much more evocative because you know that they really did happen that way, which is quite striking. The essence of fiction is, uh, or at least my kind of novel, is plausibility, believability. Can you believe that these people actually did this? And um, to actually use a skeleton of real facts and to uh, use as much detail of procedure as possible gives a kind of reality to a book. Uh, and that's enormously important. I can't stand books where you think, oh, no, she wouldn't. Oh, no, he didn't. But that couldn't have happened. It's a constant search to make things seem as plausible and true as possible. To pick up on your point there of that skeleton of real facts, you also have a couple of real characters, most notably um, Werner von Braun, of course, the German um, rocket scientist. What was it about him that intrigued you and made you want to include him as a character within the book? Well, the relationship between my fictional Dr. Graf and uh, Werner von Braun is, is one of the crucial relationships in the novel. Um, and von Braun was a uh, hugely charismatic, um, attractive figure, um, brilliant, obviously, as an engineer, also with enormous ambition and drive and an ability to manage a huge team. Um, and he made a lot of moral compromises. He had to join the Nazi party. He also took honorary rank in the SS. And you see this figure turn from the idealistic schoolboy into a man who is, if not directly, indirectly, presiding over a massive um, armaments program, 
including thousands of people working, and indeed slave laborers in a factory in Nordhaus, and where they built the V2. Uh, and I wanted the relationship between them to bring alive that uh, gradual moral descent uh, which happened to von Braun, who was lucky, clearly, not to be prosecuted for war crimes in 1945, but whose expertise was so valuable. Uh, he simply moved shop over to the United States and then, as uh, we all know, uh, was the the great engineer and program director of the, of the Apollo moon landings. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, to anyone who says, um, why are you so obsessed with the Second World War? I say, why aren't you obsessed with the Second World War? It, it simply seems to me uh, to be so significant in the formation of our own society today that it's always interesting to go back and look at it. And of course, it's thrilling. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Something I find intriguing here is that in a book where you've got fictional characters and non-fictional characters woven together, as a writer, for you, is there any difference in approaching those two facets? Well, you, you have to try and be honest. Um, you know, this is a novel. Um, it, it necessarily, therefore, I have it's all invented. Um, you have a responsibility to try and be true to the basic spirit of the story. And I think when you put a real character in, 
you have to try and be as honest as you can about that character. I mean, Von Braun is glimpsed from the outside constantly, and I think that I do give him uh, a fair crack. I mean, he's shown as, as an attractive figure. He, he wasn't a monster. I don't certainly wasn't an ideological Nazi. Uh, and he quickly realised uh, that the Germans were going to lose the war. And for the last year or more, his main concern was simply to try and get all his information intact so that he could do a deal with the Americans. And he was, in fact, arrested by the Gestapo, who uh, the SS clearly began to suspect um, that um, they'd been hoodwinked in a way. And I think that there's some truth in that. I think that he was such a brilliant salesman. One of the, it's only a paragraph or a page in the novel, but when he flew with the test results of the first V2 launch, successful launch to Hitler's headquarters uh, in East Prussia and showed the film to Hitler, um, he, he did it rather like a, an advertising executive trying to sell a product, and Hitler bought it completely, uh, made him a professor on the spot. Um, and, you know, I wanted to convey that aspect uh, of Von Braun, uh, the salesman. And I think that um, after a while, people around Hitler, the SS, began to cotton on to the fact that the V2, although the most sophisticated piece of engineering in the world, uh, revolutionary, it would fly. It could fly nearly a hundred miles into space. Um, it wasn't a weapon. It wasn't a very successful weapon. It was hugely expensive. The the Germans spent almost as much developing V weapons as the, or, or indeed slightly more actually than the Americans spent developing the atomic bomb. Uh, they wasted the money because a, a V two only carried a one ton warhead, and a Lancaster bomber could carry six tons. I think looking at the scientists as you do and th and seeing the Nazi regime through the eyes of Dr. Graf, the engineer, is an interesting way, isn't it, of seeing the Nazi regime because it's a slightly different perspective on the kind of moral compromises that a lot of people had to make. Yes. Uh, um, there were Nazis among the rocket scientists, but most of them were apolitical. Some of them were even communists, actually, uh, or, or social democrats. Uh, they were driven by their desire to build this rocket. Uh, and the consequences of it was not something they ever really, I think, considered until um, 1942, when, when they actually successfully had a test launch of the um, uh, V2. And this coincided with the German defeat at Stalingrad. And so another collision of history that as Hitler realised the war was he was going to lose the war and that he had to find some game changer uh, to try and avoid c calamity. Along comes Werner von Braun with his film of the rocket launch. And that is the, that's a great moment in the history of armaments and space travel, actually, because it was then that Hitler th threw the resources of the modern German state behind this revolutionary technology. And it's a salutary fact, but I think it's true that we would not have got to the moon, certainly not in 1969, without Hitler. Um, of course, this isn't your first book set in the Second World War. We've already spoken about Enigma, and of course it was um, inspiration for books like Munich and Fatherland. Why do you think that you're drawn back to this time period? And why do you think as well that there's such a strong and continuing appetite among readers for books set in the Second World War? Well, I think that the Second World War was the greatest 
single event in human history. Um, and the rise of the Nazis and the crimes that they committed uh, are, hold a mirror up to mankind. And we, we're endlessly drawn back to look at it and trying to work out why, why within living memory one European power was occupying another to fire ballistic missiles at the capital city of a third, within living memory, 76 years ago. Uh, I mean, to anyone who says, um, why are you so obsessed with the Second World War? I say, why aren't you obsessed with the Second World War? It, it simply seems to me uh, to be so significant in the formation of our own society today that it's always interesting to go back and look at it. And of course, it's thrilling. It's exciting. It's, uh, it's human beings at the very edge of their characters. Uh, and it's hugely high stakes. So uh, I grew up um, at a time when there were still bomb sites around and when my parents' generation had all been through the war. And it was all that people talked about and it dominated popular entertainments all through my childhood. So I was sort of steeped in it. I, w I wasn't alive at the time, but I almost feel as though I was. I always think about the Second World War that there's just such a multiplicity of stories. When you think you've heard all the possible stories there could be, there'll be another one from somewhere else in the globe or from a, seen from a different perspective. So I guess you could, I mean... There's a hundred more novels you could write set in the Second World War. Oh, yes. I don't think that people will ever lose their interest in it. Um, and yes, you can always find something new to say. Um, I mean, I think that um, V2, I don't think there's another novel like V2 that actually goes inside the development of the rocket or indeed describes what it was like to be in the firing platoons in the artillery regiments in occupied Holland, in the woods, um, fueling these missiles uh, and firing them often at night um, and in fear of Allied air attack. Uh, what that was like is interesting to convey, and there is very, very little information available about that. The, the rocket uh, troops didn't tend to leave memoirs. Uh, so it was a voyage of discovery for me to try and piece together what it was like to actually do that. Over the past um, 30 years or so that you've been writing, your, your novels have clearly really struck a chord with readers. What do you think are the key ingredients of a really great historical novel? I think a sense of a feeling for the reader of immersion. Uh, I think a feeling that this is what it was like, something like this. Um, I think characters who stimulate your imagination and you you sympathise with them or you recoil from them, but nevertheless they come alive. And a propulsive story, if you can bring it off, that's the most difficult thing of all, of course, is to try and uh, uh, arrange all these tens of thousands of words of research into something that is a coherent narrative uh, that, that takes you into it. Um, and it doesn't really matter what period it is, ancient Rome, 19th century French army with the Dreyfus affair uh, or the Second World War. Uh, you need a couple of characters you really believe in and you need something to happen to them that's interesting at the beginning. And you need, I think, as a reader, the sense that the writer knows what they're doing. I mean, you know, they're going to 
take you on a journey that will deliver you somewhere. Um, you mentioned there ancient Rome. Um, so, of course, you have written in other time periods as well. But looking forward to the future, are there any other areas of history that you think you would like to explore in your writing? Any and all, to be honest. I mean, there's no, there's no period that doesn't have something fascinating about it. I'm quite interested in the English Civil War. Uh, I'm quite interested in the... First World War or British society in the run-up to the First World War. I've been thinking about both of those. Um, you know, I could go back to ancient Rome. I mean, one of the advantages of what I do is there is a limitless number of places to go and write. I have not got myself trapped in endlessly writing about my own experiences growing up in Nottingham and going to university and working at the BBC. I've been able to uh, take the world, as it were, and uh, so, so there's always something to do. There's always something interesting. And you never know when an idea is just going to come out of nowhere and uh, take you over for a year or two. That was Robert Harris. His book, V2, is published by Hutchinson. If you're interested in the Second World War, we have tons of material on our website. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash second hyphen world hyphen war to find out more. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow you can hear another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend events, this time on Ancient Egypt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.